Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness to pray and to rest before he began his public ministry. This year during Lent, join Pastor Hook to pray and rest as we learn about our calling to be a life-changing connection to Christ in our world. We are in episode 26 of our study, Life-Changing Connection, where we're looking at various scriptural verses to look at launching towards November and kind of the mission and vision that God's called our church to. And today we're going to continue uh, in James chapter 5. I kind of abruptly ended it yesterday because I had another meeting that I had to get to, and I made it to the meeting just fine, so that was wonderful. But I wanted to continue on this idea of James. I just want to read to you again what James says in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So James writes, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I just want to uh, dwell on this for a little bit because here in James, he makes this huge connection that we don't really make today, but it was very much a part of the world that he was in. And that was the idea of sin and sickness. And how they're interconnected because sin is anything that sin is anything that breaks our relationship with God. I guess that's probably maybe a, a, a one definition of sin that might be beneficial for this this particular section of scripture. And today we live in such a clinical medical world that we assume that anyone is sick is because they've they've contracted a virus and they are sick and they have to lay in bed, they have to drink Dayquil or NyQuil or take Sudafed or ibuprofen or whatever, and they're eventually going to get better from this sickness. Or if it's really bad, then they go to the emergency room, or if it's bad, they go to the hospital. And then you have doctors and nurses that all come around you and they kind of tell you, okay, this is the diagnosis, this is the healing. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Actually, that's probably one of the reasons why we have such a longer life today than we did 30 years ago or 50 years ago. But what we've kind of separated is this idea of resting with God in his presence and not being stressed out um, be eating correctly, living a life that is more, um, more I, I want to say slower, because you can do a lot of things, but just living in the presence of God and letting him direct and guide and order your day so that you can get the things done that he wants you to get done and making him central a part of your life. And we already know, I was told in high school by one of my high school teachers that the number one cause of the common cold was a lack of sleep. That, that if you were not kind of resting and taking care of your body, that your natural defenses would be reduced and you would be more um, 
susceptible to viruses that might come into your life. And this was back in the 80s or 70s even, that that this was something, and I've always, I've always felt that that was good advice. And that if I find myself waking up in the middle of the night or not getting enough sleep, that my, I'm, my defenses are getting lower and lower to pretty soon God says, aha, you're not getting enough sleep. I'm going to make sure you get enough sleep. And then he infects me with a virus or a common cold or whatever. And then I'm forced to sleep. But if you live your life just in the presence of God and don't get, everybody gets stressed, but knowing that he's going to take care of everything and you do get enough sleep, that helps also kind of prevent diseases. And another thing that helps prevent disease that is, is lack of stress. Yeah, you know, reducing stress in your life. Some level of stress is good. Psychiatrists will tell you some level of stress is great for you. It helps you motivate you. It's almost like a caffeine type of thing that can get in your body. A little bit of stress is great, but too much stress. And now all of a sudden you're losing sleep. Your body is producing the stress hormone called cortisol, which can cause all sorts of stress problems in your life. And so the idea here from James linking, linking stress with sickness and sin is is not far off the mark because when you are overly stressed, when you don't get enough sleep because you wake up at two o'clock in the, at night because you're stressed about whatever, you've got some issue at work or some issue with your kids or some issue with your family or some issue with your parents or some issue with your friends or some issue with finances or some issue with the world around you that it causes you to lose sleep and all that, then that is at some level sin that needs to be addressed, that can be helped by just somebody walking alongside you, listening to you. You confess that to them. They pray over you and those sins are forgiven. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I, I just want to dwell on that. I mean, think about how awesome it was in the early church when there were people that would go out and and be with somebody in their moment of stress or need or whatever, uh, and they would anoint them with oil, they would pray over them, and that this would be a healing thing in the world. And that, to me, is a perfect image. It's a perfect image of discipleship. Because our image in our church is that we plant this seed, it grows, it bears fruit, but the seed gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, The root system gets stronger and stronger until you become a righteous person who is powerful and effective. And a lot of people read this and say, well, this this is the pastor, right? He's a righteous person, powerful and effective. You know, I'm not. <laughs> I, may be, I may be a pastor. You may be call me pastor. And I might be a little bit more skilled in some of these areas because I've done, you know, some of this kind of stuff. Um, but what, what if our church produced these people that were that were well grounded in their faith, that they could go out, they could listen to people, they could um, pray over these people, they could help heal these people, they could get involved in people's lives in a in such a manner that they could actually do this. And this is to me just the greatest image of what the end game is for our church is to produce people who would be willing to. Ha- that would be that would be 
filled with God enough that they could go out and 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 pray over somebody and anoint them with oil and that healing would occur. That to me would be a great mark of a church that could do something like that. And I think some churches actually are very, very good at this. And some churches have never even thought about this because it's just never been on their radar screen. A lot of mainline Protestant churches kind of shy away from this whole anointing with oil. It's another, a Latin word for it is called unction, U-N-C-T-I-O-N. And in the Roman Catholic Church, you have one of the sacraments is called extreme unction. And extreme unction is somebody's in their deathbed and a priest would go with oil, anoint them, pray over them and kind of say, oh, it's okay. You can die now. You're, you're safe with Jesus. Don't, don't worry about this next phase of your journey in the kingdom because this is a great thing. And we in the mainline Protestant church don't necessarily call that a sacrament, but we do, you know, as much as possible, try to peep be with people at their, you know, at their moment of death to be, you know, to say, it's okay, God's going to be with you in this next step of your journey and that sort of thing. That is a, that is a wonderfully powerful thing in the church to be able to do that. But my heart desires is that, that we would have lots of people growing in their faith that could do this, not at the moment of death and all that, but just, just as they encounter people in their lives that are going through things that are causing all sorts of problems that they would sit and talk with them and help them see God's greater purpose for them in their life and how they can um, you know, grow with whatever thing is going on. This is kind of what James is earlier talking about in James 1 where he says that he rejoices whenever there's tribu- tribulations because when you have somebody walking with you through these tribulations and helping you grow in your faith, it actually turns out to be a blessing in your life and blessing to the world around us. So that's, it kind of starts with that in James 1 and it kind of ends with in James 5 that basically says, listen, this is your calling is to be a disciple to do this. So um, we, we talked about this a little bit, but that the whole idea of the early church going out and, and healing people and and I'm not talking about overriding the healing that medical professionals do. That's that's one type of healing that they do very, very well. And I'm not talking about that, but I'm just talking about people who are burdened or people who are who are have too much cortisol in their life, people who aren't getting enough sleep, people who just really need somebody to walk alongside them and to listen to them, to pray for them, to you know, to to heal them in as much as this can heal from from the spiritual aspect of of the sickness. And and the fact is there's many, many people, many, many doctors that have looked into this and have said that that healing is as much spiritual as it is physical. Doctors know this. They know that if a person is is physically sick from some disease, if somebody can walk alongside them and be with them in the spiritual aspect of this, they heal better, they heal quicker, they heal faster. There's just more wholeness involved in their life. And that's basically what, what I think James is talking about here. Yesterday, we looked at um, a guy whose who's, um, master's thesis, or maybe it's a PhD thesis, was about he- the healing ministry of the church. And I read to you his conclusion that said, 
Christians often look at the healing ministry of Christ from a biological, physiological perspective. And so when they face severe ailments, they hope to witness the power of healing in their lives. They want God to intervene and restore their physical health. And when interventions don't take place, they become discouraged. But there is intervention that takes place even at the non-physical level. And um, there's another paper that I'd come across about somebody who had, had talked about the healing, how the, the apostolic and post-apostolic church viewed this. And I'll just, I'll just read to you a little bit from that document. How did the early church continue to exercise this authority to heal, which Jesus had demonstrated in his life, death, and resurrection? Jesus sent out both the 12 and the 70 with specific orders to heal the sick. All of these disciples found, often to their surprise, that they had considerable power over both physical and spiritual sickness. After the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the risen Christ appeared to the eleven and concluded his commission to them with the words that they would lay hands on the sick and they will recover. That's from Mark 16. These apostles continued to, to, to pray for specific people in need, such as the lame beggar at the temple who asked for money, but to whom Peter replied, Look at us. We don't have any money, but in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Furthermore, Peter made it clear to the Israelites who gathered around him that this healing had not taken place by his own power or piety, but rather faith in Jesus Christ was responsible. On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you now see, the faith which comes through him and given to him perfect health in the presence of all of you. And of course, this has given rise today to people who call themselves faith healers, and they're just only looking at the physical, which is wrong. It's, it's not, it is, it is a total emotional, physical, spiritual kind of diagnosis of a person, and just simply being there and laying hands on them and praying is a, is a beautiful thing. And we as a church should look to this as an end game that people would grow in their faith, be a tree planted by the water that is so big and strong and healthy and bearing fruit that they're going through the world and just healing people. And it doesn't have to be me and it doesn't have to be people inside our congregation. It can be people just that you come into contact with, that you can tell that need a, a prayer in their life, need, um, need some someone to walk with them. I, uh, oh, you'll, you'll meet some Christians that will uh, go to a restaurant and they'll, they'll strike up a relationship with the server. And if they notice that the server is troubled or something like that, they might say, uh, is there anything I can pray for you today? And the server will say, yeah. And then you say, okay, can I pray for you now? Or do you want me to just pray in, in my own time? And they say, just pray for me in your own time. Okay, I will do that. Or no, you can pray for me now. And then you just say a prayer. I mean, it depends on the situation, depending on how bold the Christian is. But I've seen this happen, um, actually have done this um, on occasion as the Lord directs. It's very uncomfortable, I think, for some people to do this. And so it doesn't happen often, but this could be something that somebody does. Because the goal is to help people grow spiritually. There's um, the... Psychologists notice that there are different stages of a person's life. 
that they, you know, from an early stage, they're focused on some things, but as they grow into the end stages of their life, they really are just, it's more about how I can make a difference in the world around me. And um, it's called, uh, one article I found calls it the stages of psychological development. I'll just, I'll just show this to you a little bit. Um, this is the stages of psychological development. At the bottom here, we have surviving. So if you're zero to two years old, you're just basically trying to stay alive and physically healthy by getting survival needs met. And so what are survival needs? You have to eat and drink. <laughs> That's basically, and, and be associated with somebody that loves you, right? That's surviving. And then there's the conforming stage, three to seven, feeling safe and protected by staying close to your family. Then there's the differentiating stage, which is eight to 24, which is feeling recognized and respected by establishing yourself in a community that values who you are. This could be your family, this could be your church, this could be your school, this could be your group of friends. But basically, how am I different and how am I, how has God called me? I mean, if you want to say it in a Christian sense. And then there's individuating from 25 to 39. This is discovering your true identity by letting go of your fears and your dependence on others. And then there's um, self-actualizing, 40 to 49, expressing your true nature by embracing your soul's value and purpose, integrating 50 to 59, connecting with others in unconditional loving relationships to make a difference. And then finally, the last stage, serving, 60 years and older, Contributing to the well-being and future of a future generation, humanity, and the planet. So this is how we grow psychologically. But I think it might even be, you know, appropriate to say this is may, this is the way we go spiritually, where the seed is planted. But then you kind of grow and you and you build and you and you learn about your own faith, and then you share that faith with other people, and then you get to the point in your life where you where God has blessed you so much, and you realize all of his blessings in your life that you can't help but share that with other people. And that's that's kind of um, where you are. Now, what's interesting is that in this particular article, it says that if people kind of get stunted in one of these levels, like they don't really grow beyond it. Um, if you did not grow up in a healthy family, you kind of get stunted, you know, as, as like a as a 24-year-old because you haven't really experienced who you are and you haven't had that healthy, protective relationship around you. And so there's a, there's a, there, there's a, a ministry. That, so there's a ministry called Alcohol Anonymous, which I'm sure you've all heard. And it's people who, who go into groups, small group, and they, and they help grow and they grow in their faith and they rely on God and they pray to God. Now, Alcoholism Anonymous is about addictions, and, and typically addictions happen because at some level in your life, you were stunted for somewhat of the reason. Drugs can stunt you, um, and uh, addictions can stunt you. Uh, if you didn't grow up in a healthy family, that can stunt you. That was, uh, it's become so popular, Alcoholics Anonymous, that it became institutionalized and um, so there are some people that took that program and they re-spiritualized it, and it's called Celebrate Recovery. It was started by Saddleback Church in uh, California. But there's another type of recovery thing, and it's called Genesis. And basically what the Genesis program is, is going back and just talking to people and finding out at what stage of their life were, were their spiritual or emotional or physical development stunted 
and then go back there, heal that, and then continue to provide the resources so that they can grow into the person that God's called them to be. And that takes one-on-one spiritual time with somebody to kind of, you know, go back, pick up where they left off, and then continue to grow them in a great community so that they can be who God's called them to be. That's called the Genesis program. And apparently it's it's highly effective. Like the if you really do this, if a if a person actually did go back and look at each stage of their life and try to figure out, okay, where did it go wrong? And then pick up from there and grow, then the there's a word called recidivism, like how how much then do they revert back into their addiction? And apparently the Genesis program, this this program that goes back and looks has a very, very low recidivism rate. I mean, lower than anything else that's out there. So it's apparently a very, very good and strong and healthy program. I've thought about trying to bring that into our congregation at some point. I just, it's maybe something that we would look at in the future. I don't know. It's a its a phenomenally good program, but it really does require specialized counseling skills, which I don't have. And I don't know if how we, you know, where that would come from. But anyway, be that neither here nor there. What we do have skills in is simply growing in our faith and then walking along other side people, walking alongside other people, listening to them and praying over them so that they also can heal. And that's that's basically, if, if I had one definition of what is discipleship, that would be it, is that we would be a congregation filled of people not just me, but filled with a whole bunch of people that are willing to risk their own comfort level so that they can get deeply involved in other people's lives, to listen to them, to pray over them, to heal them, that God has called them to do. That's, that's, my, that's my vision for, for what a loving disciple is. That's, that's kind of the end game is that we would be a church that creates a bunch of those types of people. And not just for our own benefit in our congregation. I mean, that would be great in our congregation, no question about it. But in the world, that as you're sent out into the world as a manager or as a leader or as a worker or wherever God sends you, as a teacher, wherever you are in your world, that you are keen to listen to other people and to at some level Pray over them, heal them, and bring about the, the good news of Jesus in their life. That would be it. It's hard because it's difficult, it's, um, it's challenging, it, 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 it forces you to, to step up your faith game in a, in, a, in a way that maybe hasn't stepped up before. But that, if, if we, I shouldn't say if we, when we become a church that is filled with a lot of these, and we have, I mean, don't give me a question. We have a lot of people like this in our church, but the, the goal of a congregation is to do more of this, right? To build more of these types of people. And it can start even in junior high. I mean, we can start, you know, developing people's faith in this area. Um, there's a, there's a, in, um, well, yeah. We'll we'll get into this tomorrow. We definitely will get into this tomorrow. Um, we'll look at Luke and how Jesus did it because in Luke, it kind of gives a pattern for Jesus to how he did his ministry, and I think we'll just spend some time uh, in the next episode looking at Luke and and just seeing how Jesus did that and how that applies to us. And so 
we'll we'll actually look at that tomorrow. Um, so I think we'll just end it maybe a few minutes early today. And um, thank you for joining me. Uh, we'll we'll continue this topic in a different direction tomorrow, but it's still on the same topic. So let's let's join in prayer. Gracious God, uh, continue to fill me with more of you, so that I can love others in my life. Because of Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen.